0: Teletetet.
1: Hello, this is Freya, ZZZ host and co-founder of FEMFAREN. First off, we will dive straight into this special ZZZ episode in which I give the voice to Jeremy from the Food and Design Collective, The Soft Protest Digest.
2: So we decided, yeah, okay, we're going to start with this and see how how it goes and how better to learn it and understand it by asking the Dutch to teach us how to do it. So we kind of went around and asked people to teach us how to make the Stampert and we we managed to gather a few people, um, mainly a very nice man called Dan, mm-hmm. who's a, a senior. <laughs> Uh, coming from uh, Ahlem who taught us how to make his own version of the stampot, which was really um, revealing in the sense that he showed us that he would not put salt in his fo- in the stampot, for example, because mm-hmm. his mother and apparently all the people of his generation were eating too salty food because their food was badly produced and over salted so he would only put a little bit of soy sauce. And then we presented him with very good kale, mm-hmm. kale, uh, kale, uh, cabbage, mm-hmm. and he did not know how to cut it. And he told us, "Yeah, from uh, since the '70s, I never, I haven't cut kale. I only use pre-cut uh, vegetables." And these kind of stories piling up were really interesting for us because from. We had all those kind of cooking workshops, stamp workshops, and from those we got so many stories that really taught us a bit of what the Dutch were, um, what kind of social and political impact can food have on a daily basis. And from this, it kind of opened us to a wider scope of what Dutch food actually is and how do the ent- do they... Interact with products and, and supermarkets, and how do they question the food that they eat and the process that uh, the, the food goes through, and if they question it. Or not.
1: On a crisp, cold, and sunny winter's day in Fanfara, I sat down with our current residents of the first ever Fanfara residency which we formed together with the artist's residency apartment, the M4 Restatelier's here in Amsterdam. For the month of January, the design and farming collective The Soft Protest Digest have been taking over from Vare and conducting research within this context. For this episode of TetaT, I spoke to its founders Niki, Jeremy and Ruben. During the conversation we will move from meta-topics on food industry such as governmental and global impact to unfold more specific Dutch recipes, meals, the relevance of storytelling and specifically take a moment to go into depth with the Dutch surroundings in which Funfare is based but also in which the research and residency of the soft protest took off. Before continuing, it should be noted that as this episode has a lot on its heart and is spiced with a lot of small stories, the episode ultimately demands a little longer time than usually. Furthermore, all the sounds, animals and occasional jingles are recorded on location by the Soft Protest Digest and co-mixed here with my other fanfare half, Lodif van de Hoef. I guess there's not much more to say than letting this episode unfold.
2: (laughs) I'm here
1: crew of the soft protest digest and i thought like um without necessarily diving straight into introducing each of you we can come back to that maybe it would be nice if you just just for the listener that doesn't have a clue would give a short introduction of how that name actually came
3: about so me and jeremy we started cooking together in paris because he I mean, was heartbroken. <laughs> it no, that's fine. But um, you were heartbroken, and I was just in Paris, and we were just cooking yeah. because we had nothing else to do. To mm. be
2: honest, I think the first, at first, we just wanted to find pro- little protesting yeah. reasons, basically. Yeah. One of the first one, the first one actually was just in August, I think. Hmm. We were just protect, uh, protesting against too much sun and hiding in the shade, basically. And having a dinner for ten people, mm-hmm. that was the small protest. Since then, we've been a bit more activist with the protest part of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it started like this. But,
3: but uh, basically, soft protest is is reference to food because it's mostly soft, yeah. and it can also, in our opinion, be a protest every day. Yeah. So there's a like there's a big kind of potential for. <clears throat> Political soft activism through what you buy.
1: This is this is a perfect uh, link to my next follow up question, which is still also uh, staying at like trying to define the soft protest digest. Um, because when reading through or preparing for this talk <coughs> a little bit, um, you come by the word resilience quite a lot, and. Um, that can be understood in different ways, of course, so first thing that I did was to uh, Wikipedia the word, and uh, it starts out by saying that resilience is, um, a psychological resilience is the ability to successfully cope with a crisis and to return to pre-crisis status quickly. I can imagine that you've put more thoughts into the choice of resilience in context with the soft protest digest could you perhaps give some insight to uh, to this choice of words and also how it connects to what you do
3: yeah so we prefer to use the word resilience and for example instead of sustainability which uh, is a word that is vastly used to describe the act of sustaining a current uh, present um and we think we have to go a bit further than that. So it's right what you said. Um, because like in terms of uh, climate crisis, um, we uh, need we need the nature and the world of the planet to be more robust. And in order to uphold like a sort of uh, equilibrium, um, we need to define, climate resiliency as the means to absorb shock but then also regenerate into a stronger version not only to like the former uh, state but actually into a stronger version because sustainability is kind of referring to the same thing as you just said like kind of going back to the or keeping the the current state or status quo but in terms of climate change I think we need to go further than that and we need to promote nature to be uh, resilient in ways of becoming stronger actually um, and more robust and we define it as uh, the ability to pass trend basically and become steadily rooted in the specific culture Um, so we think that both aspects are important when we talk about food because you cannot only have a resilient part. let's take what could an example be? Um, yeah, on the table we have oat milk. Mm-hmm. So this is like a trend these days, like to drink oat milk. Mm-hmm. And I'm not against oat milk, but it also kind of has to have a cultural relation to, to the society in which it's embedded.
1: Well, actually it taps quite well into how, how this information that I've read into continues. And also to a question maybe that in response to what you said because it continues then to say that um, in simpler terms resilience exists in people who develop psychological and behavioral capabilities that allow them to remain calm during crisis or chaos and to move on from the incident without long-term negative consequences. And it... (coughs) so this this idea of resilience and also how you speak about it, also kind of suggests that that there is a state of crisis. Chaos. yeah a crisis, yeah is that something that you observe?
3: We use it uh, also you can also use the term cli- climate resilience, and mm-hmm. that is like directly referencing climate change and mm-hmm. climate distress, so I think that's definitely a state of crisis in my yeah. opinion, yeah. And that's also where we would like to work from, (laughs) this like, state of, uh, of, um, state of crisis.
0: Yeah.
2: Mm. Amazing sound of the police.
0: (laughs) It's not
3: added.
1: Uh, But we can pretend so.
0: what, what What I will add to what Nikki said so like this uh, this crisis doesn't con- uh, concern only uh, the environment but also like the culture and the habits of, uh, of lots of people in, uh, in all kind of uh, industrialized countries and uh, it, uh, it can be seen uh, in uh, all types of uh, pre-cooked meal of uh, industrialized product and uh, of uh, loss of Cooking habits, for example, for example.
1: Yeah, because I think I mean now we've been talking on a kind of also a meta level, which is which is really great because I, th- I sense that there's a lot of uh, initial drive and motivation behind the self protest within these like really like um larger scale concerns but if like going more into like depth of what it is that you're doing then um it's also quite tangible and social and relatable i think how you react to it with the self-digest or self protest digest this might happen more than once um and for instance, uh the first encounter or like collaboration that we had here in Vanfare with you yeah. was in october yeah. <laughs> and um and at this moment you had an event here called um, Warum beginning with Stampot. Yeah. uh which like takes this conversation maybe more down to ground and um, if we look through like your Instagram profile this. Different stories and insights on different kinds of stampers. I noted down and dive glitter rose borin col and m- more actually. Um, but throughout this this example of a project, um, I think it kind of reflects very well the way that you work and the way that you work with uh, narratives and storytelling. So I wonder if perhaps, maybe maybe first for the listener that doesn't know about this project, maybe you could tell a little bit about what that project was.
2: First off, I think this name came from uh, the fact that we arrived in the Netherlands and said, okay, we're going to work on Dutch food. And mm-hmm. for us, that was a bit, that was very exciting, but very overwhelming as well, because we did not know so much about the food in the Netherlands and... Kind of attacking all issues at once of one country felt like an amazing goal, but completely, we did not know where to start basically. So we decided at first we should start with only one dish to try and understand what Dutch food was at its core, maybe, because every time you would ask, or I would ask a question, like the question to the Dutch, What is your favorite Dutch food? Most, like 90% of the time, they would say, I'm sorry, Dutch food is really not good. And I cannot really talk about it. But we have good uh, Indonesian food. We have good Surinamese food. Or we have this dish called stampot, which is basically mashed potatoes with mashed vegetables, which is fairly easy to do but uh, and even Lotte from Farmers telling me ah a good stamp out.
1: yeah it's really good um, could you perhaps th- tell a little bit about why this, um, or this tool of storytelling in the context of what it is that you do because it seems like it, it's also it's also the first impression when you when you um, well I mean being part of one of your events or uh, looking at your Instagram as well, the story and the like history is very present, both visually and 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 in writing.
2: To be honest, I think, for example, if you see the vegan patty that you can find anywhere in the Western world, which is basically a soy burger, I think it makes sense. Maybe in the US, but here it's it's very much a trend linked to Instagram and all those. Kind of vegan foods that you find everywhere, but what it's gonna miss, I'm and I'm really convinced of it is that in the next, let's like, say, 10 20 years, when the burger will not be as trendy and be replaced with, I don't know, like the bagel, let's say, we'll never use the the vegan patties, will kind of fall out of use because there's no story linked to it, either than the fact that it's cool and it's. A vegan burger and I think and I think that for a a food to stick it needs a tradition or it needs a story of how it was created I mean uh, coming from France this is really like all the products we eat are really the emphasis is put on the history it's a bit too much to be honest and sometimes and most of the time it's completely made up and completely romanticized but all the food we eat, we eat, we have an emotional attachment to it because there's a story linked to it. And it's mainly about uh, mistakes in the kitchen, how somebody messed up a pie and put it back together and became another pie. And all the, these traditions, it's really hard to date them nor to tell if they're true or not. But at least there's an emotional attachment to the food. And we feel that uh, in the food that we propose and the dishes that we design the, the the story part is the most important more much more than the taste I think because mm-hmm. that's how people connect with it
0: moreover I would add that uh, all those um, those stories linked to some dishes are also linked to to some ingredients and products that are also culturally rooted and uh, when Jeremy told about those uh, vegan burgers etc they are usually not even uh, like, cl- uh, culturally rooted uh, in terms of ingredients they are usually made with soya or nuts that comes from foreign countries and uh, that are usually um, uh, grown in uh, really intensive ways and uh, I think you can um, try to have a good food which is uh, sustainable and resilient uh, that is also made up for uh, made with ingredients that are only from from the region or from, uh, from really border countries. Mm. And here in, uh, in Holland, I think uh, even if it's a north country, you still have a lot of different types of vegetables mm. or dairy products, etc., that are not uh, used enough in all those new food trends, let's say.
3: So what we are also interested in is other ways of telling stories about food. It can even be fiction, um, it can be ritualistic. It can be linked to how you eat the dish, or it can be linked to the cultural landscape or the physical landscape. Um, so that's that's what we are very yeah interested in as well. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, it
1: still has to be What you speak about does also link a bit, I think, to the way that you've been working while being here because uh, almost every day, is my impression, you've been uh, biking not that far but visiting farms and places where you've <coughs> spoken to people, that are farmers and also you've bought a lot of your vegetables from these places. Could you perhaps tell just a little bit about what you discovered when... When visiting these places, because maybe to add, uh, I think generally there could be a, a kind of um, an idea that buying organic and buying a, a local is also um, expensive. However, I think during the conversations that we've had and the, the yeah, journeys you've went on, that's kind of... Um, at least changed my perspective of that case.
0: Um, what we discovered uh, while while biking uh, around uh, Amsterdam is that, first of all, you can bike around Amsterdam, which is not the case of all cities, mm-hmm. and it's a great quality, quality. And we discovered that a lot of <laughs> small producers are just, uh, you can reach them really easily by, uh, like... Uh, Maybe a quarter of or, uh, or twenty minutes uh, of biking, and uh, you don't even have to uh, to go to a shop. You can directly go to those producers, and that's really something you can't find in such a lot of cities because the suburbs are overme- over, Sorry, because the suburbs are really present and uh, and they they make uh, um, agriculture uneas- uh, uneasily to to do. Uh, really near the city and um, yeah this is something for example uh, coming from paris you've got all the those um, shops that are called amap where you can buy uh, quite local products that are produced uh, not that far away from from the city but still you you need like something between between you and the farmer but it, it works really well and you can you can get nice produces but uh, in Amsterdam, you can just skip this part and go straight to the producer.
2: And actually, what's surprising is not just uh, having the pleasure of talking to the producers. It's just the trip itself is really some something that is really rare, basically, to take the bike for 25 minutes and go to a farm and see animals and talk to farmers. I mean, it's it's quite rare. And when you do it, and we've we done it, but we haven't done it every day. Because at first, when you think about it, it's kind of you think of it of a trip it's really yeah but actually when you do it you realize how lucky you are being in Amsterdam and being able to do that and yeah. and it was quite magical really because you're in the nature very fast and yeah and and it's very cheap which is one big argument it's like it's twice as cheap as Albertine. exactly and this yeah. is incredible to me that's really wh- how I was convinced really
3: yeah yeah for sure and um <clears throat> I think uh, Holland, or the Netherlands, um, is going through a paradigm shift that you see all over Europe, uh, this this awareness towards small-scale farming and farm-to-table and skipping the middleman, which is the supermarket. And I think this, um, this movement is definitely also uh, here in the Netherlands and it's very needed because... Uh, the Netherlands is the second largest exporter of food in terms of value in mm. the world, which is really, really impressive. Mm. But the fact is that uh, all their quality products is basically exported. Um, they're not so... We, we talked to, uh, to uh, a Dutch uh, man, and he was saying that, that basically they <clears throat> they're more proud of the part where they can, they're a large exporter. Instead of being proud of the actual product itso- itself and the quality of the product, mm. so this is really this is really super interesting, I think, and I think it also explains many things in terms of why you would have, for example, like this, uh, uh, yeah, this this uh, cult about Albert Heijn and stuff, like a lot of people going there still and not really questioning where things comes from, but on the other hand, you also have this this new movement where people are getting more aware. And, and the Dutch are really amazing farmers because they have been cultivating land. They have been claiming land from the sea. Um, they're really like uh, very, very uh, talented cultivators. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think the Netherlands is really an interesting place for us, both in terms of the food culture, but also in terms of food production, actually.
1: Yeah, because without wanting to go too much into like personal biography or whatever of the people here at this table, the self-protest I just does exist of um of of a person of Nordic background and then and then two people of French background. Um, And I wonder, like, speaking of your approach and your experience of the Dutch cuisine, how much do you think your your cultural background um, um, has an impact on your experience of the Netherlands and the Dutch and and maybe also and and how do you think the Netherlands or the Dutch cuisine differs from what you're used to or know of? and perhaps this is of course not a one kind of um answer. I mean actually it would be interesting both to hear it from a Nordic point of view, but also a French.
2: To be honest, there's one thing I, that was quite surprising to me at first, is that when you overview the Dutch cuisine, it feels like there's a portfolio of 20 dishes, basically, which mainly call on the use of potato, beans and everything. But when you look a bit more into detail, into, for example, the, like the range of pastries they have, most of them are using very tricky techniques that either come from France or can come, come from Denmark as well. We've been seeing this little uh, chocolate <laughs> puff... Flourballet. <laughs> um So lots of puff pastry, loads of... Uh, for example, the tumpus that we're working on right now is really... It's a mix of uh, puff pastry, which is compressed with pastry cream and everything. And in that sense, it's really not showing off. I think it's really... It's kind of a... What the Dutch hide behind this idea of not showing off and being very honest and radical, mm. but in the end they're kind of taking techniques from all over and maybe not showcasing them as uh, crafts like what we would do in France, for example, mm. we would know what they would do in France <laughs> but um but they still use those techniques and so it's a m- it's a of things.
3: But what I think is, uh, is relatable to Nordic cuisine, uh, especially in the past, uh, is this thing that that dishes or recipes have not been branded by the state. So there is, uh, there's for example, this dish uh, in Holland, which is called VGA. Yeah,
2: which is vlees, groente and aardappel, which means meat, uh, vegetable and potato.
3: Yeah, and this you would probably also... See in, uh, in Denmark, uh, especially maybe 40 years ago, 50 years ago, um, we also really had this very simple cuisine, um, not a lot of uh, uh, extravaganza basically. And um, in that way, yeah, in the North and, and Holland has really something in common. Um, and it's interesting to see because now, in like the new Nordic cuisine, has really kind of um, Pushed uh, this this uh, very simple Danish food into more quality oriented um, food and like reviving old uh, techniques and old recipes and even old grains for example and we haven't seen that in in the Netherlands yet. And
1: Actually, this um, event and also what you're doing kind of leads on to take us back to a track of maybe more, a bit more of a meta level, I think. Because I do wonder like, with everything that you've um, reflected on and and observed also within the last months of working here in the Netherlands, um, how do you imagine? This development of the Dutch food culture to um, to continue on from here, do you are you are you are you optimists or pessimists?
2: It could either be a narrative of using this this image they have already of really uh, tr- trustworthy, ingenious farmers mm-hmm. that uh, make wonders with the nature and have no romanticism towards nature and make it make this uh, hit, like this story kind of trendy and cool yeah or it can take a completely different direction and become it feels that it's, it could as well become this kind of um, this kind of image of a very techy, very food techie society as well yeah and this is something I, I would be very sad to see the Netherlands fall into. That's why we are trying as well to design new narratives, which take history and not only the very Calvinist, uh, um, grim history of the Netherlands, but create completely different narratives.
3: Yeah, and uh, yeah, this this part of like the industry has really a, a, like a, it's, it's basically the narrative far. Mm. Like we see it in. Mm. The production of the plant-based meat, for example, mm. which they're, they're really ahead in that direction, but like we already discussed, it's like really not rooted at all. No, and it seems like the Dutch are really not; they don't want to own their uh, their food culture. Basically, mm. they want to kind of start from from scratch, mm. which is could be interesting. But yeah, but in our opinion, maybe. Um, I, we have discovered this there's a lot of material there yeah. and there's a lot to actually work with
1: yeah because um, i can imagine that it's interesting that you talk about the for instance the the culture of 40 or 50 years ago and the simplicity of the food culture at that moment which i guess also really to a very high extent reflects the globalization generally and i can imagine that this like that in this process of globalization, there's perhaps been a moment, some, some, for quite some years, where the, where the story of the local, or like the um, cherishing, the local has been forgotten, <clears throat> and I wonder to what extent you think, uh, do you think that's only within the Netherlands, or do you perhaps think that the self protest <laughs> just can have like. Quite some other countries also to tap into. Um,
0: of course, um, there are lots of countries we'd like um, to um, to observe, to yeah. discover, and uh, and and to um, let's say analyze uh, to um, in just for um, for for the idea to to build sustainable diets that are always culturally rooted, rooted, and also in the landscape. Of uh, each country, each countries. But for now we are in the Netherlands, and um, yeah, and uh, there was uh, one big part in it. It is that uh, in the 18th century there was somehow a big crisis where Netherlands lost a lot of uh, its uh, economical power, and uh, all. Um, the diet of uh, people, even in the bourgeoisie, even uh, in a rich um, neighborhoods, let's say, uh, consisted of some kind of um, crisis gastronomy somehow, like with lots of uh, vegetables, lots of soup, uh, lots, lots of mashed potatoes. And uh, afterwards, it became some kind of a new definition of Dutch cuisine that was teached in uh, those school's called uh, the... Housemaid School. Yeah, the Housemaid School.
3: Academy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
0: <laughs> this is uh, wrong. That's, that's wrong. Yeah, that's the w- <laughs> it the sounds f- cute. Yeah, I'm uh-huh. sorry, it sounds cute, but lots of people just show these things uh, as if it was like the, the damnation of Dutch cuisine somehow, because uh, afterwards, everybody, or at least all the housemaids, they had like this same education, because those schools were free, and everybody would, uh, almost every woman, woman would go in, in the school, and uh, learn the same types of recipes and uh, and tech and techniques that were really rooted in this type of crisis food somehow. But uh, personally, I don't think it's. I, I don't think in. Personally, I don't think it's such a bad thing, and I think uh, this. Uh, um, this simple and uh, and uh, humble food can really be uh, still be a route for something interesting that could be appealing for all uh, the all Europe. Mm.
2: And as we can see from this, that the the impact of government can have on a whole culture is really impressive as well, because it was uh, at first the government issued uh, idea to open those schools for poor women and then for rich women because they became kind of trendy and we can see that in this time span of 80 years they changed the food culture and the way Dutch people eat still now so branding a food culture and changing it through narratives and, and teaching and just changing the combat.
1: impact basically yeah
2: it has a tremendous impact and in that sense I think we as designers and, and storytellers can we can have an impact as well because it's really a matter of telling a story. Yeah. You know, and
3: teaching and it, it. But it has to be a movement. I mean, we are not the new desires yeah. of <laughs> food culture, yeah. know, but but it has to start from somewhere and maybe, yeah, it can kickstart something that becomes a movement. Who knows? But, but yeah, it's really interesting actually how, how things have um, dogmatically been... Uh, branded or uh, protected by the state, you see that in France or in Italy, and their food culture and also their agriculture mm-hmm. is in another state. Then, for example, Germany or Denmark or Holland, and, and that's very interesting.
1: Yeah, and and so this also fits very well with your name, the soft protest digest. And I think at this moment I have almost more things that I want to talk about than than I would do. Uh, Want to not talk about but I also think we have to like wrap it up soon and I quite like it that I think a conversation like this only triggers a lot of other um, questions and discussions and conversations Um, but before ending completely I do think it would be uh, worth it to have you just tell a little bit about how you will end this work stay here in Van Vare and and in the Netherlands for now at least. Because um, on Saturday, the 2nd of February, we'll have a small event taking place here in Amsterdam, Van Vare. And for that moment, what will happen?
3: Yeah, so um, we have been working on uh, some dishes Throughout this month, and uh, that we will present, and also the connected stories to those dishes, um, and we also developed this kind of uh, tool that we use to to evaluate um, whether a dish is culturally resilient and and environmentally resilient, mm-hmm. uh, and we will also showcase that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. That's
2: so. been actually a big part of our month here in the residency, is that at first we met and it was quite overwhelming again. It was like, we've got a month and we have to talk about everything. Mm-hmm. And so we were always talking about and using this word resiliency and we decided that we should take some time to actually define it. Yeah. And as we were defining it and kind of creating a list of check, checkpoints to, um, to check... Of boxes to check, um, we realized that it was a really complicated matter. It was not only good or bad, but everything was negotiate, negotiable. And um, and what we've been doing is to write down and create this kind of system, which is not perfect, and that we're going to keep on developing in the months to come. But to, we've been trying to test it with this dishes that we've made, and every product that we used in those dishes has been going through a long process of negotiation of, okay, there's, for example, the best way to describe this kind of process is oil. For example, there is a dish where we fry a potato. I'll be fast. Take your time. And uh, for example, we were thinking about using using rapeseed oil and they produce rapeseed here in the Netherlands, but... We've been looking at all the brands of organic rapeseed and non-organic rapeseed oil, and non-organic. Uh, there's no organic rapeseed oil that's produced in the Netherlands, or if there is, the rapeseed comes from somewhere else. Yeah. So the idea then was to think: Is it more resilient to use a non-organic oil in the Netherlands, with actually uh, rapeseed rapeseed that's produced in the Netherlands, or to buy very good quality rapeseed that's been processed in Germany, for example, and ship it to the Netherlands. That's the kind of negotiation we go through all the time with every component of the dishes we created. Mm. And that's what we're going to show as well at this show Mm. on Saturday.
1: And you've divided some um, ingredients between the three of you, am
3: I right? Yeah, we started working on uh, a few ingredients each and really going into... To the process of, of processing those ingredients, but mm-hmm. also uh, what, what they meant for the landscape and blah, blah, blah. And, <laughs> and uh, what, what, yeah, what is really interesting that, that I think this tool that we developed can, can showcase is that food is often thought as consequential. This is good or this is bad. But uh, it's really super negotiable what, what you... Uh, what is the right thing to buy and kind of complex and 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 that's also what we want to promote a little bit that it's not just like good or bad dairy is not just bad necessarily Mm -hmm. but uh, it's 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 really more complex than that and also more negotiable but whether we will succeed is is, uh, is the question because like for us, it, you really cannot avoid this negotiation process when no. you actually discuss things. Like a rating system might be reducing uh, choice uh, into something way more simple, but it might not be the most optimal way. So it's really hard to actually find. It's a perfect way. Yeah, I think
1: it's kind of a common thing that whenever you simplify something, you actually increase the complexity of it as well. There will always uh, be yeah. someone that simplified yeah, you it. Could say that. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah.
3: Yes, yeah, it should true. be planet centric diets. Also, of course, human-centric, but first of all, planet centric. Which kind that's of our, go, goes hand in hand. That's our slogan.
1: Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but I guess it, it kind of saves the human.
3: Of course
1: that's yeah. <laughs> yeah. For the future so Okay, let's end with those words saving okay. saving the human <laughs> Thank you. <laughs>
2: <laughs> oh, me. I'm sorry.
1: This TetherTether Tether episode was produced by me, Freya Kier, and is part of a larger collection of conversations and recordings covering the active program of Fanfare, of which you can find links to all episodes on our website. These episodes are all produced in parallel with our program and furthermore aim to cover reflections and insights of projects and initiatives within the realm of design and visual communication. For this, you're very welcome to register at your podcast app to stay tuned for future episodes. Before rounding off, there's a few things that should be mentioned. First off, it is warmly recommended to go visit and follow the Instagram of the Soft Protest Digest which is full of additional insights, stories, delicious visits and food that only sparks one's imagination of the unlimited field in which the soft protest digest is taking form. During our conversation, we talk about various farms visited in which all addresses may be found on the Fanfara webpage as well as on the podcast notes of this episode. If you happen to be around Amsterdam on this Saturday, the 2nd of February 2019, we most warmly welcome you to indulge in the tasty findings and stories of the Soft Protest Digest. And this is the last point. It should be noted that, as this medium of conversations, sounds and recordings is a constant learning process, which very much takes shape as we go, We warmly appreciate any kind of comments, suggestions or playful future ideas.